We'd Like a Word. Welcome to part two of this episode of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we're talking about men writing from a woman's perspective and all sorts of other things with author R.J. McBrien, author of Reckless, which I'm brandishing here, and Shelley Weiner, author of all sorts of books, including a number of guides to writing uh, short stories and your first novel. So we've just kind of emerging fresh from that hilarious and disastrous sex scene that you sprung on us with little <laughs> warning. So for anyone who might be offended by that sort of thing, you shouldn't have listened to the first part. I'm glad you skipped it to this part because it gets quite explicit and funny. And there's mention of all sorts of things like pubes. And, uh, anyway, but luckily... You, you what are they? I, I, well, I know. Read, reckless, <laughs> find out. You mentioned that there wasn't all that much sex in it. And I was struck by that and kind of relieved as well. It's a book about a woman. She's dissatisfied with her sex life and she joins an agency to have more sex. No strings, sex. But for all that, she doesn't actually have, it isn't described that much sex in the book. I mean, you're kind of setting yourself a bit of a, a challenge there. Again, so not just writing from a woman's perspective, but writing about in, intimate sexual life. And then sex is the subject. And do you shy away from that? I was aware that it's a very difficult thing to get right without getting the bad sex award. And I also felt that I couldn't really probably do it justice as a man, but I could do justice to the consequences of what she was deciding to do. So, and also she had an itch to scratch, as it were, and the scratching of it was successful for quite a long time. So, so then I wasn't really interested in the scratching. I was interested in when it starts to go horribly, horribly wrong. You're, and, you're such uh, a smooth talker. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I thought it was a, probably a safer approach. To, to, to do it this way. And I've, I've read very few really good sex scenes. You know, I, I think they're just- That's really a good question. Good. What good sex scenes have well, any, of us, any of us read? When you reread Ch Lady Chatterley's Lover, it seems to be almost absurd. Like, it, it, I, I didn't, you know, it's not very, but it's a long time since I read it. I probably read it at school. But I remember not finding it particularly sexy as a teenager when you'd have thought you might've done. It seemed sort of ludicrous. I mean, I'd read Luster recently. Did you read, read that? Which has got quite I've, a- Sex scenes in it, which didn't particularly work for me. I think I, I think it's very difficult. I think it's very difficult to do. The best ones I've ever read have always been with a good chunk of humour thrown in. You know, sort of. I remember when I was in my teens reading a first Jilly Cooper and laughing all the way through it. Whereas, you know, uh, when I then tried a Jackie Collins, it was like, oh, what do you mean, purple-headed warrior? Oh, no. <laughs> it turned out she was just as bad at writing them as most men are. Yeah, there, there aren't many good ones that I've ever read that don't have a good element of humour thrown in. But that may be true of all, all bodily functions in a way. I mean, <laughs> Maybe I so. To sex, you know, whether it's just very difficult to describe those very ordinary physical things without them sounding ridiculous. What do you think, Shelley? Well, I think that the, um, obviously, a lot of sex scenes are put into fiction to titillate and that's fine, that's their purpose and that's the kind of book that you want to read and it's clearly signaled there's a contract with the reader that's almost right from the start, the cover, this is what I want to read. But I think if you're writing good fiction, 
well-written, with characterization, with all the elements that uh, lift it above just the function of a clearly erotic novel, then I think a sex scene should have conflict like every other scene, that it should be there because one wants something, the other one wants something else, and what the result, the outcome impacts on what happens next. So it's part of the ongoing narrative, part of the forward momentum of the story, and it has a clear function in the narrative. And I think that I can really understand why in um, Reckless, the sex scenes were there, you know, that's what was happening. But um, I love the the scratching and the itching, uh, because that's not the interesting thing. I think the interesting thing is, and then what happens? And then, so it's really all moving the story forward. And there's a feeling of dread. She's not going to get away with this. She's not going to get away with this. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's not a Fifty Shades of Grey, is it? The, the whole point, the book is the book is not about sex. It's about a woman going on this journey, of which that just happens to be the subject. You know, I mean, it's like in the same way as if the uh, protagonist was selling cars, you would have to have some selling of cars going on in it, but that's not what the story is about. That is exactly right. It's just a means of discussing something else. Yeah. Indeed, and, yeah, yeah. That's a very good and, point. And I think also, the, you know, good sex is not of any interest to anybody apart from the people who are involved in it. So, you know, so that's not particularly interesting to write about in a, in a way, it's all working fine. So that's where it goes back to Shelley's thing. There's got to be conflict or there's got to be something going wrong to make it interesting. Otherwise, I mean, it's like describing a, people eating a good meal. Mm. You know, it's not, yeah, I know. <laughs> unless somebody gets food poisoning. Yeah. Unless somebody gets well, food see, poisoning. I don't I disagree. Exactly, I, yeah. I love reading about people enjoying good meals. Books set in Italy, that's the central part of it. Every now and then, Montalbano in the Andrea Camilleri books, he takes a break and sits and has a, a big meal and nobody's allowed to talk during it and we find out what he's eating and then you know, after a while he'll have another one and that's something we all look forward to. Yeah, I think that that would be, and I, I agree, I think we always want to know what people are eating and that's part of the detail that creates this plausible world in which your novel is set. And so a lot of that might be setting and might be evocative setting, but actually even enjoying the most lavish gourmet meal, as a reader, I want to know, and then what happens, you know, do they get food poisoning? Do they find out something in this meal? Is there an interaction? Because with a meal, if they're more than one person, it's going to be a conversation. So maybe the food happens, but the more important thing is the conversation that might result. Yeah, it's, the, it's, the te- it's, it's the just enough detail to take the story forward. We were talking about this in the previous podcast mm-hmm. where we were talking about, of all things, how deep you go into your research. And um, I'm trying to remember who it was who said it now. It wasn't Eamon, I don't think. But we were talking about in older books, you see there's a lot of, faffing about starting a car using the choke on a car and, oh that was alan parks was talking about oh, it was the alan, choke. wasn't it yes yeah. and uh, you know the fact that no one's got a choke anymore but it's fact it was a completely unnecessary detail in those books yeah. because all you needed to know was he started the car because that's the only bit that takes the story forward not the process yeah. by which he started the car unless that's relevant and yeah. i think that's the point you can have a nice gourmet meal but you don't have to go into exactly how the scallops were cooked and unless that is necessarily an important part of the story And the important thing is to focus only on what the protagonist notices at the time. So, you know, for instance, with Kristen, what she might notice, well, she certainly noticed Toby, but, you know, so that gave her (laughs) an opportunity to dwell on Toby. But, um, you know, if her mind had been elsewhere, then you wouldn't notice, so you wouldn't, wouldn't report it. It has to be really true to the experience of your point of view character. 
That's the immersion. Mm. And that's well, that's the challenge to be this person, this character, whether a male or female. I was just thinking when you were saying that, that maybe it's easier to not to describe sex if it's from the first person narrator's point of view. Was if, if it was written from the third person, maybe it'd be more necessary. I don't know, with, maybe that's true because why would she describe it to herself in, in, in effect <laughs> rather, yeah. than a, rather than an I, a person up here watching it? So maybe that's an excuse I could use to why I didn't write. <laughs> write so well, if she was writing this in a, a close third person, you'd have the same limitations. So, yeah. And if you were, yeah, had a, some omniscient narrator who's watching him and her having sex, uh, then of course, you know, but they wouldn't go zoom in close. They wouldn't experience anyone's yeah. feelings about the matter. Yeah, that's true. On a more general point, and I suppose that this is inspired by the books you've written, Shelley, writing short stories and writing your first novel. Is there, and I'm going to ask you as well, Richard, so you can think about this. What is the one piece of advice you would give to an aspiring author? I would say stay inside your story. I've known so many writers who step outside and on many levels are worry about how to be perceived. They worry whether their themes are lofty enough. They worry about their right to write, you know, I'm this who am I to write this novel? And I always tell them that the best thing to do is to fully invent your characters, to try and understand some kind of architecture of your story so you can safely go inside that story and stay there until you reach a landing point that you feel is there just to feel safe about. But that, that's what I believe. And it seems to work. Go back into your story, stop worrying. Yeah. What about you, Richard? Well, I certainly think that it's an intimidating thing to do. If I'd realised how long it would take and you know, how difficult it would be, would I have started doing it? Because it is, it, is, it is far more work than I had anticipated. But for me, because it, I was a first timer and nervous about it, I had the plot very worked out. So for me, that was very useful. I know lots of people write in order to find out what happens, but I had a, a, it fairly clearly delineated what was going to happen in each thing and pick off the scene where she goes to the hotel and meets Toby and then tomorrow I can do so I knew I I I found it useful to know where I was within my book so I spent quite a lot of time mapping it out which I think if I hadn't done that I would have felt I didn't know really where I was um so that was one thing and the other thing for me as a, as a you know as a beginner it was very important to do it all the time so if I took off two weeks I, f I forgot the voice, I forgot, I couldn't get back into it. And I forget where I was. And so the consistent, the advice would be however little <laughs> a day, every day, and then the characters sort of live in your head more, as opposed to taking off, say, oh, well, I'll, um, I'll do, I'll do two week, two days this week, and then I'll come back to it in May. For me, that didn't work. I tried that. That, that was not a good idea. That's interesting. I mean, Shelley said something there about self-doubt. You know, should I be writing this out? Am I, am I good enough to write this? You know, there's a touch of imposter syndrome in there. But also, I mean, it, it does... I, I will have to throw this question out there, as it's something you might want to ask yourself. But do you think there are going to be people out there who think that possibly you don't have the right to write as a woman in the fact that men have already taken so much from women over the years taking their voice as well do we actually have the right as men to write as women when women should be the people writing as women
Well, I think that, uh, I, mean, I find it difficult in some ways. I think that we should all have the right to write from any point of view that we want to. I don't think that it's a pie that is limited in the number of slices that it has, that if I take, if I write from the point of view of a woman, that means that they can't, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not finite in that sense. But on the other hand, I, I do see that that might be irritating. <laughs> and I'm not, I, I, I'm in two minds about it because I'm not quite sure whether I would, I think I have the right to do it, to write from any perspective, but whether it would be wise or possible on the other hand, great writers in the past, not that I am comparing myself, but on both sides, like George Eliot was perfectly good at writing, um, you know, f- uh, male parts and Jane Austen. And as we said, you know, Tolstoy and, and actually even to, some, to a certain extent, uh, D.H. Lawrence to go back to him. So they didn't feel that they couldn't. So I don't think I would legislate against doing it, but I am aware that it's possibly considered cheeky at the least. <laughs> But I didn't do it for that reason. I, I did it because I thought it would be a more interesting story to tell it from her point of view and to see the man entirely through her eyes. That's what I, I was. I was. I'm always interested in these narrators who are who are unreliable but reliable to themselves. So she doesn't see herself as an unreliable narrator. But obviously, we do. And then to build up, up some characters who are only seen through her eyes but we know that they're not quite like that. Mm. But that's, not that's a good with. answer. It's, it's certainly the way I see it. I mean, I mean, Shelley, you wouldn't, I don't suppose you would have huge qualms about writing a story from a man's perspective, or would you? I think if I was curious about how this particular character operated in his world and um, what he wanted, really understood it and approached the project with great integrity. I think integrity is the key thing to have. Um, I think if you're cynical or opportunistic about any of these things, it shows. Um, And that's where the problem starts. Um, And I, you know, I I think that Richard invented Kristen from the inside and she, you know, he did it to to the best of his ability. He really, you know, went inside her head and her heart and tried to understand what she wanted in her life. And so that for me makes it perfectly credible and um you know a project that's interesting and creative i'll be honest i mean i i only had time to skim read the book but i didn't realize until about halfway through when paul told me that the r is for richard i didn't realize it wasn't a woman so that that's actually i think probably if you get if you get that reaction from everyone then i was i was almost wishing as i read it that i didn't know it was Richard. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was curious as to how convincing I would find it. And that's lovely to hear. Yeah. Yes, that's lovely to hear. I'll be very interested for, you know, when some female readers read it who haven't, don't know anything, how they react, which obviously hasn't happened yet. So I'm in this funny state, which is quite nice. It's out, but not reviewed. So I'm okay. Buyers tend to be women. Yes. Your name on the cover is R.J. McBrien rather than Richard Bryan. Mm-hmm. I presume that's to conceal that you're a man. It was partly to do with that and partly because I, I wanted to differentiate it from what I'd done before, where I used Richard. So stuff that I'd written, you know, for TV stuff, I wanted to make it, well, I wanted it to be different. I also think, <laughs> I think it looks neater. I think it looks neater. Okay, <laughs> fair my- enough. Uh, there's another thing. You're, right. um, You're absolutely right. I mean, it's it's a it's a, 
I don't want to hide it in the sense that if I'm asked, I'm, you know, I'm not like, like we're discussing it today. It's a perfectly legitimate thing to say. And I'm not saying I'm not, but I suppose I'm not saying I'm anything when they pick it up, like, you know, like uh, JK Rowling. I, you know, why did she do that? Mm. Or J.R. Tolkien or D.H. Lawrence. I mean, there's, there's quite a long list of people using. There is. You know, I was you, trying to remember if there had been an author bio in the book. Well, there's and a there bit at the back. And you do is mention it, the back, in the acknowledgements your wife. Pepper. Yes, that could be my wife, wife, my it, my lady wife. My indeed, it, it could be, yeah, it could be. So I, the, the other thing I want to ask you, I know that you changed the ending. Yeah. On the advice of your editor, Niamh Mulvey. Yes. Yes. Now, do you want to tell us a bit about that without yes. giving away the ending? Of course, we don't want to give away the ending, but no. But the ending, the, the, essence of it. the ending has got a wonderful twi twist. No, obviously not. But it has got a twist at the end. And it wasn't so much the twistiness of it. It was she felt that a woman who'd been through what my character has been through, which is which is it isn't all just funny. This is sort of traumatic. And there are there is a, a murder and da, 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 da. so uh, would come out the other end a different person. And in, she would put it as you know, this woman should have agency by the end. And she's right, because I, I, I think that plots are there to put your characters under increasing pressure, like screw your characters down and then watch what they do. And what they do is who they are. You know, in other words, what they do under pressure defines who they are. And the most pressure in any story, in, you know, films or, or novels, is the ending, because that is their final choice. And that tells you who, who they fundamentally are. And in my original version, it didn't really do that. And that's what she pointed out. She pointed out that you, you'd been on this journey and at the end it sort of petered out and a lesson hadn't been learned either for the reader or the character themselves. And she had to develop and have control and agency and change. So she put it like that. She put it in quite theoretical terms, better than that, because he, she wrote it, she knows she's very good at it. She writes a long thing about it. And I thought, actually, you're totally correct. And so then I went back and tried to address those issues without changing massively. And then I thought that, of course, that's right. And then I thought, why didn't I see that? <laughs> that's what I actually thought. I thought, why on earth didn't I see that? But I suppose that's the point of an editor, isn't it? There's an interesting lesson here, I think, that I suppose to be a good or to be a better writer than you start as, you have to have the humility to listen to good advice. You don't have to take all of it, but probably mm -hmm. take some of it. And that's been a theme of what you're discussing. You've taken yeah. it from Shelley, from Nave, and from the other beta readers that you had. Yes, there is. And I think that's because I started doing stuff for TV and film, which is a very collaborative thing where you, or interfering, depending which way you look at it, where, where you, know, you work extensively with script editors, producers, directors, actors, all the way through a project. I'm quite used to people sitting down and saying, right, we are going to do a page one edit. And they would go through your script and we'd go through it page by page by page. So that was how I works. I quite like that because it is very helpful. You don't have to take everything. You know, you don't have to accept everything. But, but these are clever people. So they're quite often, they're quite often right. <laughs> I mean, they've worked with other writers for years and they, they understand and have insights that are worth listening to, I think. I always remember um, a bit of advice from Neil Gaiman once, which was, if your beta readers tell you there's something wrong, they are right. If they tell you how to fix it, they're wrong. <laughs> which, I thought was, which I thought was quite a nice piece of advice. <laughs> it's spot on. And if you, know, if you have yeah. four people telling you the same thing, then you should listen.
completely, because, completely. You know, because obviously, you know, you, you, because it's such a lonely activity, isn't it? Writing a book, I've, I, I found, because you're sitting there and it's an act of faith, and you have absolutely no idea whether it'll anybody will even read it. Uh, the more help you can get, the better. <laughs> absolutely, for a beginner, anyway. So it's you know, yeah. I think that's a good point to bring part two of this episode of Weed Like a Word to an end. In part three, we'll be hearing, well, we'll certainly be asking about Jodie Foster. Yes, good. We're getting a reaction from Richard to that one. And Arthur Miller and disasters in the screenplay writing trade. And also we'll be talking to Shelley about some powerful things in her own background. But for now, this is the end of part two of this episode of Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Coleman. Join us for part three with Shelley Weiner and Richard McBrien, author of Reckless. And we'll see you then. Mm-hmm.